The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets and politics, startups, creatives, cuisine. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Restaurants don't make a ton of money. Your returns are minimal. I think people are just into the fact that eating out, drinking, hanging out is a big deal. You have doctors, you have lawyers, you have people with money. You're just like, hey, man, I want to give you money on this. And to myself, I'm thinking, I don't know how, you know, you're going to get 10% return in like five years. Chef Mike Lindsay on how he and his wife went off on their own to launch seven restaurants during the pandemic. With more on deck, he's like a value-investing chef, pouncing to buy and rent low and pick up slightly used equipment and furniture, all while dishing up one epic puck of cornbread. So grab a drink. We'll seat you shortly. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Enjoy full disclosure on NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ News, Virginia's NPR news station. You can get in touch to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. Joining me at the University of Richmond's Robin School Business, where I occasionally record, is Chef Mike Lindsay. He is CEO and founder of the Lindsay Food Group, which now has seven restaurants open during the pandemic since the throws the teeth of the pandemic in 2020. How are you, sir? I'm doing incredible, man. Thank you for having me. Life comes at you fast because one minute, it's uh, 2018, and we're doing an event. was called Ace the Midterms, where I wanted to get a couple of Richmond chefs and everything, and a, a mutual friend is Chris Sway, and he suggested you from a concept that he had recently opened was Red Salt you know, Sushi and Chop House. And I just remember that there was this chef that everybody's talking about at Red Salt, that everybody's talking about his cornbread right. at a sushi shop. like. Was some family homage cornbread like a round loaf that everybody was hoarding? And then next thing I know, you're in Forbes this week, and it says that Chef Mike Lindsay opened seven restaurants in Richmond since 2020. With more on the way, there's Lily Pearl, there's Bully Burger. You took over Pops on Grace, and I said I have to have him on the show. Absolutely, yeah, it's been great, man. It's been incredible, great trip. You know, since I seen you, a lot has happened. Kim and I stepped out on our own in November 2020 with Lily Pearl. We opened Lily Pearl in the middle of the pandemic, of course. Everybody thought we were nuts. We were crazy. There was no money to get from anybody. But Virginia Commonwealth Bank, uh, I hit everybody up to get money. And, you know, the guy Dusty there called me on the phone and he said, hey, hey, Mike, I believe in your vision. I believe you can do this. He gave us 50 grand. Kim and I had 50 grand of our own and, and we set out to do this thing. So where, take me back all the way. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you meet Kim, your wife and partner? Yeah, yeah. So I was born in New Bern, North Carolina. Spent a lot of my time in San Antonio, Texas. My dad was in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. uh, we left San Antonio, moved to Virginia Beach. When I was in ninth grade, we moved back to North Carolina. Culture shock at that point for me. It was, you know, a place I stopped going in the summers. It was country. I hated it. I didn't like it. It wasn't convenient, no sidewalks, you know, 
but it turned me into an incredible person. It turned me into a credible man. And it made me realize that things aren't important as substance in yourself and your neighbors and love and those types of things. So I, I just claim North Carolina as home. I'm a North Carolina boy, Southern roots. And to that, all those things have made me who I am. My beautiful, incredible wife, Kim Love, is from Cali. Yeah, she's born in the San Diego area. And you guys met in the restaurant business? Yeah. She was with Yard House Restaurants, moved out to Virginia Beach to open that location. So Yard House was acquired about a decade ago by the parent of the Olive Garden, which is Darden Restaurants. One of these mega groups has, you know, so many locations across the United States publicly traded. Um, so you, you guys initially learned at that concept. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think the crazy run for Kim and I is that we were corporate for so long. And when I say corporate, you know, like, you know, the Cheesecake Factory, Capital Grill, Roos Chris, like where it's these incredible organizations that run really well, being with Darden and never really wanting to open our own restaurants made us really good because we were really, really good in the careers that we did, being that we pushed ourselves to get to the top, you know, in, in those in those places. So with those disciplines, learning how to really manage people, manage food, manage money, all those things you learn from people who do it really good was what made us successful moving on. Financially, what warms a corporate chef's heart? When the, the, the return family or couple comes in and gets wine, appetizers, dessert, everything kind of soup to nuts, like what moves the needle in the restaurant business, whether corporate or mom and pop? Man, that's it. That's, that's exactly what you hit it. Butts and seats? Yeah, butts and seats and a full dining experience. Most of your guests coming in, starting with an appetizer or two, they're starting with a glass of wine or a cocktail. They're having one more cocktail before their dinner comes. They enjoy entrees. They stop eating. They pack their entrees up and then they enjoy dessert. You know, sometimes you get that third cocktail or you get a full bottle of wine out of that. Um, to us in the restaurant business, that is the, the, the complete game, the trifecta, the, the everything that you want. You know, we do love bar guests that come in, just want to have a drink or appetizer or just come in for dessert. We love that as well. But to have those complete diners, that seals the deal because now that takes you from a $19 per person average to a $40, $50, $60, you know, some cases $100 per person average based on that dining experience. But is most of the margin in the liquor or is it in the bookends, kind of the appetizers and the dessert? I know this gets to liquor, the Liquor, liquor. Really? Yeah. Liquor, beer, and wine is, is where you make your money. You want to sell cocktails. Just think about it, right? You got an entree on the menu. That entree is between 20 and $30. A person drinks two cocktails, especially at today's price, between 12 to $14, two cocktails. That already equals what they had in their entree almost. So your margins are incredible. With food, it's between 30 and 40% food costs. You know, you're like 10 to 12 with beer, high teens, low 20s with liquor. Same thing with wine. So that is where you make the money. So how did you end up in Richmond? Because again, it was Eat yeah. Restaurant Group, which we've had Chris Sway on the show. I remember his interviewing me. He worked at a Baskin Robbins and he was an immigrant. And his, when he was little and after school, he was small enough to be put in the, in the walk down freezer to kind of clean it out and everything. And how he goes from this to working tables at Peking to then having a, like a 20 restaurant empire across Virginia and just opening them left and right. How were you recruited to that? How were you attracted to that? Man, so, you know, we moved here in 2016, Kim and I. I had two teenage kids that were here. They were in Richmond. I was in North Carolina. We were just 
doing it every other weekend or me coming up when they have games, whatever. My son was like, yo, pops, I need you here. I need you around more. You know, Kim was about to be, a, you know, in a big position with Yard House. I went to her. I was like, hey, kids need us there. You know, can we move to Richmond? Without a hesitation. Absolutely. So we moved. We started looking for jobs. I got a job with Matchbox. Uh-huh. Um, Which was briefly here. Yeah, yeah, the pizza spot. And Kim also ended up getting a job with Matchbox as well. So I opened up the one here in, in Richmond in Short Pump. Kim was the GM in Woodbridge. So she was driving up to Woodbridge. In Northern Virginia. In Northern Virginia. Yeah. I knew Chris Staples from my Firebirds days. Everybody knows Chris Staples. <laughs> yeah, good dude, good dude. Yeah. And I just hit him up like, yo, man, this is Mike Lindsay. Uh, I don't know if you remember me. It's been some years, but he was like, absolutely. I was like, listen, my wife is here. She's driving up to Woodbridge right now. We don't love it. Do you guys have anything in the mix that, you know, she, she could be on board for? So sat her down, interviewed her. Kim pretty much got the job was a GM of Fat Dragon. Oh, yes. Right? And then- Scott's edition. Yep. And then the goal was for her to open Red Salt. So I'm at Matchbox. You know, we're starting to meet Ren and Chris Sway and these people as Kim gets a little deeper into it. And, you know, talking with Ren, who was the vice president kind of running, opening the restaurants. He was like, hey, man, would you sit down with me? I know you work at Roost Chris, Capital Grill. We're doing a steakhouse. Can you just come walk through the kitchen with me and just tell me what you think, what, what you think we should do? Started from there to, I would love to offer you a job. And I was like, listen, Kim's been waiting for this position. She wants it. I'm not going to take that from her. So he was like, let me talk to Chris Sway. Let me see if he's cool with you guys working together. Signed off on it. So Kim and I opened that restaurant together. Red first. Salt. Red Salt. And yes. I was at the Soft Open. Yeah. Now, for everybody, you know, is not very familiar with Richmond. This is the far, far west end of Richmond. They built a huge development where there was farmland largely. And I remember that there was a group, a large group of investors that was asked to put money into this concept. Chris Sway is very famous with Chinese food, with uh, Asian food, with wild ginger, fat dragon, kind of clearly Osaka where he cut his teeth, the Japanese. And people said, okay, interesting. You're opening up a steakhouse slash sushi place. And they bring you in and you had some individual touches that you put in, like the cornbread. I yes, remember, yes. like what sushi and steak place is famous for its cornbread, but you persisted nevertheless. That's it. And I think the biggest piece was Ren was like, do your thing, right? Take what you've learned, take where you've been, and speak to it and speak to Richmond. And that's what we're able to do. So we're able to put, you know, mac and cheese on there and cream corn. And then, of course, the sweet potato cornbread, which, that's right. you know, turned into an incredible hit. But what it did was I think it created an incredible balance where you almost had two restaurants. I was able to add in a lot of Asian flavors on the steak side as well. Um, and I think it turned out to be, you know, a kind of a great concept. Yeah, it worked out. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Chef Michael Lindsay. He has now opened seven restaurants during the pandemic since he struck out on his own back in 2020, including kind of Lily Pearl. There was, gosh, fill in the blanks for me. Hey, Bully but, Burger. Bully Burger. Three Buttermilk and Honeys. Jubilee. Steakhouse named in honor of your grandma. In honor of my mom. Oh, your mom. Yeah, ML Lily Pearl's my grandmother, yeah. Oh, Lily Pearl's your grandma and ML yep. Steaks. Your gra yeah. So uh, where were you when the pandemic broke and we all got the news in 2020? Because this was, I, I remember, was a near-death experience for restaurant groups. They immediately had to contort to do carry-out business, contactless curbside pickup, delivery. They had to figure out all the gig drivers. 
and everything else and try to get kind of liquor for pickup as well. Like, tell me what was happening between your wife conversation when that broke. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's really wild is that we just had an incredible trip to Miami. My hometown. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were there for food and wine, South Beach, had an incredible time. We get back maybe a week later, it hits the fan. And as a group, you know, Kim, you know, was newly pregnant, but we just dug in, did research, found out everything we could. And Kim pretty much built this program of protocols, what we're going to do, how it was going to work. This was under EAT. This was all under EAT. Right. Yeah. So, you know, she kind of built that. We worked through it, stumbled through it, you know, the first couple of months. And then we really got it down where we were operating at a high level, putting out food. And then, you know, the aspect of there's no staff there. Now we're overworking the managers. They hate being all there all day. So then we went through that piece of it, right? So we lost a couple of managers. You know, they were getting freaked out. So then we hit into the second level of that, creating distance, curbside, rotating the the, the schedule so people can relax more. But that's in stay alive mode because there can't be margin in that. You're not, again, by definition, you're not sitting around and getting the soup to nuts, tipping many cocktails, many appetizers, putting the carry out away and then getting dessert. It's very much just trying to sell stuff and keep the kitchen functioning. Right. And and the crazy thing is everywhere was pretty good, but Fat Dragon was beyond busy. They were still doing like the same numbers. And it was harder to operate because everything was a phone call, everything was online, and it created a, a chaos. So we figured it out. We learned how to do it. We, we we learned how to get it straight. And as time went, you know, the dynamic of what Kim and I were doing, the dynamic of Eat Restaurant, the hierarchy, all those things went through this weird shift, right? You really just started having this feeling of like, we're not going to have jobs. We're not going to make it through this. Kim and I are both high earners in, in this group. What do we do if we lose our job? You know, pay was getting cut. Different things were happening. Um, you know, you start feeling a little underappreciated and then you start to realize it's time. It's time to start stop being the lion in the zoo that's getting fed every day who strolls out and his meat is laid out for him to being the lion in the jungle and figuring out how to go get your own food. Is that why the lion is on the logo? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. To me, it was a wake up call, almost like a dream of, you know, this analogy, right? And I told Kim, I was like, yo, we got to, we got to figure this out. She was like, no way. She was going to stay at eat. She was pregnant. She was just like, you're crazy. We we can't do this. And I was like, we can do it. Who better to do it than you and I? Do you mind my asking, did you have savings? Like when you were sitting on like every night on the pillows, yeah. yeah. you'd say, honey, we can do this. Or you have to have some faith. We know how to run this. We can get the working capital. Like I couldn't even imagine because the temptation in a period like that where we didn't know if there were going to be butts in seats anymore. We didn't know about the variants. We didn't know there wasn't business interruption insurance. They were taking PPP loans left and right. Why would you want to leave the umbrella and the safety of a big group like that? I could see your wife's argument. And she and, and you're dead on with it because no one's giving money, right? You're stepping into it. Does it get worse? You know, does it does it work at all? And I just told her, I was like, for where this thing is going, we lose our jobs. You know, it's about signing the right lease. It's about doing all these things. And I was like, I just want you to know I want to do it. I want your support. I'll do all the footwork. So that's what I did. I just went in. I did all the research. I put out all the emails to the hundred of banks 
Um, you know, I did all the interviews with, you know, small banking loans and businesses and organizations. None of that panned out. You know, I had about 50 grand saved up, honestly, and looking at doing something in the future, a space I looked at at Pasture. I looked at it while Jason Alley was still in the in it. They were trying to sell it as Pasture. Now, hold that thought. The yep. flip side of this crisis is that you had restaurants failing left and right and people who were hanging on saying, you know what? I can't make these ends meet anymore. It's too much uncertainty in a low margin business where workers are not coming back. Food inflation starts to introduce itself, supply chain issues. It became a mess. And how long can I kind of do this contactless curbside carry out thing to just keep it together? A bunch of people said, I'm out. For an enterprising entrepreneur like yourself and the missus, however, reluctantly, this was opportunity because you had turnkey opportunities. You could go into a great place on Grace Street, which became Richmond's Restaurant Road downtown, Bam. and you had very lightly used equipment, the prestige of the address. You could kind of go in and with a little bit of dusting up, open up for business. Yes, yes. and people know the location, know where you are. You know, iconic location, you know, to be honest to me, of what really energized some, some dining in Richmond. And for us, you know, buttermilk and honey was grown to be a part of Lily Pearl from the beginning as a ghost kitchen as a pop-up because we knew people wouldn't want to eat $30 meals every day. They're not going to feed their kids off that. So we introduced buttermilk and honey during fried chicken sandwiches and tenders. But walk me back. Lily Pearl was the first concept out of the gate. Yeah. How did you come up with that? With with buttermilk and honey together, right? So, But that wasn't the Pops Market location you bought on Grace first. No, no. We did it as a pop-up day one at Lily Pearl. But how did you open Lily Pearl? What was there? What was the opportunity? What was the concept? Every everything was laid out. The spaces always speak to us. You know, I wanted to do buttermilk and honey first and short pump. That deal just couldn't work itself out. So Lily Pearl just came to us and I already had the concept. I already had the name. I already kind of had the menu. I already had the vision. So what was the idea? You were going to serve kind of a lower price ticket type thing with more comfort food? Well, honestly, it was to serve a higher ticket price, elevated Southern food. I see. Yeah. And then, you know, our low end piece was that buttermilk and honey fried chicken piece. I see. Which you tested as a pop-up through Lily Pearl. Yeah. Almost as a survival because I know Lily Pearl would be great with seating coming back into the restaurant, but we need this to-go energy to keep going. So buttermilk and honey took off and to-go where Lily Pearl grew as the standalone. And it, and it was weird. It was It came together in the most surprising way. Kim was like, we're not doing two concepts in one. We're not doing that. Now, was Kim very pregnant at that moment or has she already given birth? She had Tristan September 13th. So two months before we opened. So I'm in the building. I'm doing all the cleaning. I'm setting everything up. You know, I'm, I'm doing all the footwork. Kim's home with the baby. I'll come home, relieve her, let her get some sleep, get some rest. I hang, you know, I'll do my part there. It was, it was kind of crazy. But How then, was there any faith that you were going to get traffic back in a dining room, much less the whole soup to nuts, appetizers to dessert kind of continuum that these restaurants such as, you know, Fat Dragon and Red Salt, they thrive on? I believed in it, man. I just believe that people knew me and knew my name enough being with Eat and the hits that I did with Eat that the trust would be there. Also, just be real about it. Black Lives Matter. Mm. Restaurants are closing. You know, I put the bet on Richmond's love and support that they're going to embrace us, right? 
they're going to take care of us. The black community is going to be like, oh, my God. All right. This guy's on his own. Let's make sure he lives and he survives. Right. Right. And just to our surprise, you know, this thing clicked on a Facebook page, RV Dine and Drink, and it touched everybody. And it turned into something that you wouldn't have told me it would have, would have ever happened. And it just, it got crazy. It got to a point to where, I don't know, I felt like it was almost like this cult following of like, we got to go to Lily Pearl. So much that is talked about on RV Dine and Drink that people are like, can we talk about something else other than Lily Pearl? Wow. And that's when I told Kim, like, babe, we did it. We did it. People are tired of hearing about us. And it just took off from there. Backlash to the backlash. Bro, the thing that is going to sound the craziest, us opening during the pandemic was our true blessing. The restaurant couldn't fill up. We couldn't take more than we couldn't handle. We were able to tweak things as we went. And we became so good and so buttoned up at what we were doing. You know, I'm in there cooking every day. I'm running the kitchen with my team. And by the time we got busy, people were eating almost perfect food every day because we could only get so busy. This just created the, we never had less than a five star for like the first three months. Wow. Just because it forced us to dummy down and be really, really good at what we do. It forced the discipline. And let me illustrate the ferment and foment and everything that's going on parallel to Grace Street and Broad Street and downtown Richmond. 2020 is the year the pandemic breaking, but also the year that streets erupted with the George Floyd killing. In Richmond, you have the statues of Monument Avenue, you know, including Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, everybody going down, which would have been just unthinkable. And many people just saying, I'm going to avoid downtown Richmond altogether. But there was great opportunity in that, that kind of creative destruction. People were making the, special trips to come see us. To come see you. Wow. So out of the gate, were you guys just very surprised? Like every night, again, you get to see your partner constantly on the pillow every night. You got the new baby. It must be sleepless. It must have been kind of a weightless feeling, a surreal time. Like we're taking on all of these risks up front. Yeah. Yeah, man. We got to a point where we had about $3,000 left, but Kim didn't know. I, I kind of stashed like an extra twenty. That was like, if we got to touch this, we need to go ahead and start you looking for jobs. Or you left it in the bird feeder or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we got down to like this last 3000 bucks. Kim's like, I don't know if we're going to make it next week. Next week, we doubled our sales. The week after that, doubled those sales. The week after that, doubled those sales. And sales never went down from there. It just continued to get busier and busier and busier. At the moment where we were both sitting there, Kim's crying. I'm like, we can't fail. We can't fail. We can't fail. I'm thinking of everything. What am I going to do? All right. Do I have to cut some people? You know, I can't cut these guys. They they took pay cuts from working at Eat to come work with me. You know, these guys taking $10,000 pay cuts to come. Yeah. Believing in Lily Pearl and Chef Mike. And the very next week, man, it turned around. The very next week, it turned around. And again, I don't know. I mean, blessings, man. Blessings, blessings, blessings. That's why every day, no matter what happens, no matter how much love we get, no matter how much energy is, I will continue to be and stay humble because this thing that we did, it happened for a reason. I can't explain it. I can't tell you how. Kim and I are hard workers. We're smart people. But a lot of things had to align for this to happen, right? My parents selling their house to move in and take care of Tristan so we could grow the brand. You know, one restaurant isn't going to feed two people in our lifestyle. We needed three. 
we needed four restaurants to make that happen. Margins are small. And it all just happened organically. And everything that we've been able to put our hands on has been successful. We're not losing money anywhere. It's just staffing has always been great. People want to work for us. I don't know how to explain it, man. You know, it was the perfect time, the perfect storm, the perfect city, perfect location, the perfect people. It just all hit at the right thing, you know, at the right time. We're able to negotiate leases to paying half rent during the pandemic. If we were to go back to just take out, it would be a quarter of a rent. Nobody was doing that. Nobody was getting those things. And again, you know, it just, it just all worked out. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, actually, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Again, tell your parents, tell your auntie, fulldradio.com. Special shout out to our radio listeners across the great Commonwealth on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, it's a pleasure to have in studio my guest, Chef Michael Lindsay of Richmond, Virginia right now. He's been here for the better part of a decade. Uh, The 48-year-old chef is just now featured in Forbes for opening seven restaurants in Richmond since late 2020 in the throes of the pandemic with more on the way. He's clearly known for Lily Pearl, but then it opened up to Bully Burger, ML Steak, Buttermilk and Honey, and now people are showing up and banging on his door and telling him to open more. I got to ask you, I never understood the concept of pitching a restaurant investor. It's one thing to go to a bank loan officer, but what are, in addition to kind of the prestige and the swagger of being able to walk into a restaurant and saying, I'm kind of part owner of this, what does it compete with? You know, you could say, this is what a treasury bill pays you or a savings thing pays you, or if you were a landlord, this is what you get paid. At full throttle, what is the appeal of the restaurant business? Maybe the cash on cash returns. Honestly, people get pissed off at me saying this. It doesn't make sense. Restaurants don't make a ton of money. Your returns are minimal. I think people are just into the fact that eating out, drinking, hanging out is a big deal. You have doctors, you have lawyers, you have people with money. are just like, hey, man, I want to give you money on this. And, I'm, and to myself, I'm thinking, I can't give you any of the money that I'm making, right? Because those margins are small. I think people will give it and sacrifice it to do it. Kim and I don't have any investors, you know. Will there be a time? I mean, it could be, right? If we want to grow buttermilk and open up 50 locations, okay, that makes a little bit more sense, right? But a standalone restaurant, I don't know how you're going to get 10% return in like five years. But then it's paradoxical that the instant you hit an inflection point and you started being cash flow positive, you decided to open more of these. Is it because you're investing in yourself? You're investing in what you know? 100%. And again, it's the McDonald's theory. You need 10 to bring home $100,000, right? So if me and Kim are making $100,000 each plus at eat, and then we got to get that money back. One restaurant won't give us a flush $200,000 in our pockets to take care of our life, right? We have to open up three. And my goal is if we can pull a year $100,000 out of each of this restaurant, we should pull more in a restaurant that's doing three mil, but let's just be safe, right? and say that's what it is. You need multiple to be able to take care of that that money and ensure that that profit line is going to hit. You don't know how good it's going to do in the beginning. So yeah, we did Lily Pearl, 
But before we knew what Lily Pearl truly could be, we were opening up buttermilk and honey or we bought pops. Then we opened up buttermilk and honey before it even hit a year. So then the first year we're like, oh, wow, we did 2.5 million. Okay, this is cool. It, it works. But we just didn't know if it would work and we couldn't wait to see if it would work. So buttermilk and honey first year, 1.5 million. Wow. That's crazy. Selling fried chicken sandwiches. So now we understand what we can do and what it can be. But in the beginning, the energy was we might not be able to make a ton of money in these restaurants. And we just know that seeing it, the more you have, the more money as this standalone ownership brings in. And then as we grew, we have people that work for us that are great. Okay, let's continue to open because now I want to take care of Gerald King. I want to take care of Albert Barnes, right? These guys who left, eat, took pay cuts, and will run through a wall for us or dedicate the Lindsay Food Group like their owners. Now, let's build it so I can pay G $80,000. I can pay Albert $80,000 to run the kitchens of our company. We're building the infrastructure now. Okay, wow, people love working for us. So that's not so much of an intangible because you hear about the notorious turnover in the restaurant industry, which you guys clearly faced at Yard House, eat everything, going up the ranks in Darden, whether you're at a cheesecake factory or, you know, Staples has dealt with it at um, Firebirds and yep. everything, especially now, it's hard to get and retain talent. We've had restaurant owners on this thing that are complaining and lamenting that I can't even get people to show up at an interview, much less show up at the job sustainably, even if I sweeten the pot at $18 an hour or the the tip pot is sweeter. Yeah. I think what we've created is an environment that people hear about. They hear the story, white or black. They say, hey, I just want to work for you guys. So what we do is we take care of them, pay above average, and they stay. You know, And, and we've been able to do that this entire time. People are like, how are you doing? And how do you get staff? I mean, knock on wood, it's just been something that we've been able to do. We've been able to promote. All our chefs are homegrown in-house. You know, it's a dedication to them as well. I want to read from the Forbes article celebrating you kind of opening seven restaurants in less than two years and striking out and doing this on your own. I mean, to get that national attention is incredible. But it said, you acknowledge that fried chicken is one of your absolutely popular dishes. I wasn't going to add it to the menu, but I had to. My customers wanted it. Lindsay, a Richmond chef and entrepreneur, has opened a variety of eateries with varied menus, done so on a limited budget, and has been attracting a wide variety of clientele. The key to running seven successful eateries in one mid-sized city of 225,000 residents, you said, is taking care of the team. We develop in-house our chefs and our managers. We keep these people so when it's time to move to the next restaurant, we have people in the house who know our style and food. That parallel to this kind of this buy-low environment where restaurants are still dropping out. So I'm thinking back to eat. Was it Fatty Smokes, the barbecue restaurant downtown, which is now the steakhouse that you turned Keyed into? Everybody thought that it was kind of on the bleeding edge. It was a little far downtown, right near the convention center, by a bus stop. It never really hit its stride. You know, your, your former company knows when to fish or cut bait to kind of get out of a concept and reinvent. You were able to go in there with no hard feelings and everything and say, listen, I'm ready to pounce on this. Yeah, absolutely. I was... I was waiting, you know, I even hit way up a couple of times and just like, hey, what you going to do with fatties? What's going on? So I, I got the word pretty early before it hit the market that it was available. Chris Way was integral in part of making sure that the deal went through and we got the deal that we wanted. 
and we walked into that space and it's ready to go. You know, let's think about it. it closed maybe a month after it was open a year. It was a year and a month. It closed. It needed some cleaning, but everything in it is new. It was it's built for speed. It's built to cater. It's built for everything. Everybody was like, well, why would you go there? Fatty Smokes didn't make it. And it's over here and people been, you know, pissing and pooping in front of it and blah, blah, blah. I was like, you know, let's think about it. This is now my neighborhood, right? I have two restaurants on this block. I know every person that hangs out on the street. We didn't go into Lily Pearl to make money on some in somebody else's neighborhood. We went into Lily Pearl and became a part of the neighborhood. I know everybody that hangs out. I know their names. We have conversations. You know, I feed them now and then, right? These people love and protect us in this neighborhood. So, you know, we got into ML, we got it cleaned up. Every day somebody was peeing in front of it, right? I go out, hey man, I'm opening this restaurant. You know, help me out. Stop doing it. Some of the guys, you know, that we have relationships with tell people, hey man, don't pee over here. A month is done. It stopped. Never happened again. People were ready for this restaurant to come back. People believe in what we do. And we've been busy from the day we opened the door. Tell me about Pops on Grace. Parallel to that, if you cross over on Grace Street, before your time here, before my time here, the city tried to reinvent that whole area as the Sixth Street Marketplace and uh, connected the old venerable department stores, Tallheimer's and Miller and Road, to the other side. It's an area right now, part of it on the north side is kind of significant blight. But on the south side, I know because I got married in the hotel nearby 15 years ago, Grace Street has turned into Restaurant Row. You had Rappahannock. You had all of these star concepts near the theaters. It's really gorgeous at night if you're yes. ever in Richmond. And you get this rare opening with Pop's Market on Grace, which was known for its breakfast sandwiches and coffee and everything. A lot of students would frequent it. What was the backstory of that opportunity? Man, so we, of course, being great neighbors in the neighborhood, we just connected with them, with the rights, and built a great relationship with them. One day I was going over to get a sandwich and Patty was like in tears. I'm like, what's going on? What's wrong? We got to let this thing go. It's not working out. We haven't got any money. And it was like this sob story. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, I'm so sorry. Let us know if there's anything we can do. You could buy me. <laughs> Maybe a month later, she hit me up with, if you know anybody kind of thing. I was like, okay, you know, I'll let you know. And then, you know, the third time she was kind of like, hey, what do you guys think? I was like. I don't, I don't know, man. Uh, what? And she was just like, it can only be you. And, you know. Now, were they known for the incredible breakfast biscuit before or after you? This is what I want to know. What, way before. We yeah. honestly, the goal was to kind of get in, hang on to it as pops, but always turn it into a buttermilk and honey. That was our, our whole thing with them from the start. Sure. Um, but they gave us everything to make sure that we could run pops and do it. But the piece that we noticed getting into it in some of their struggles, they did what they always did. But Secret Sandwich was right beside them doing it in a different way. Secret Sandwich was a new concept that had just opened up on Gray Street, which was getting a lot of buzz and traffic. And doing sandwiches. Yeah. Right beside you. And they're busy. And Pops just dwindled. People loved it. They had the people that were Pops fans. Just wasn't enough people. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough people. So we saw that ourselves, but it was fine. It was enough to... To keep the bills going. We did private events for Lily Pearl over there. So, you know, we were able to keep it afloat until the smoke cleared all the stuff we were doing. And then we were able to flip it into a buttermilk and honey and do what we wanted so to do. So what was the goodwill of the pops on Grace at that point? It had, it had dissipated its goodwill. I mean, you realize that it could be eclipsed 
by your own concept, which was hot and everybody was looking for new stores to open? Yeah. You know, my biggest piece was honestly that we love these people and the goal was to help them get out in a way that it was clean. So, you know, we bought all the equipment, the recipes from them, and at least it gave them something to leave with, or they were just going to leave with nothing. And I was like, all right, Kim, why would we do it? Doesn't make sense, but let's think about it this way. We helped them get out. We get an incredible space on an incredible street. On Restaurant Row, in the heart of Restaurant Row, in the theater district. We don't have to do a thing to it. Right. The rent is incredible. We hang on in this pops. We do that until we get clear. And then we flip it into a buttermilk and honey. We still do events. We still do whatever. She was like, okay, that makes sense. And then, so it worked out for the rights, of course. But then it worked out for us and being in a place with incredible rent, incredible visuals, people know the space. And again, it's Restaurant Row. We're busy there all the time. You know, buttermilk and honey takes off. It doesn't step on secret sandwiches, toes. Everything there is different and everybody can survive in that same space. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. You can catch me all over social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Heck, I'm probably still on Friendster. The handle is Full D Radio. Check me out. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chef Michael Lindsay. He is CEO and founder of Lindsay Food Group, just profiled in Forbes, notably for opening seven restaurants since late 2020 in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, pandemic be damned, you know, dwindled savings account be damned. You know, in the last stretch of our show, I got to ask you, you know, you're really hitting your stride, getting a ton of press last year. And every time I open up, you know, Richmond Biz Sense or the Times Dispatch or Richmond Magazine, they're talking about a new restaurant or a new concept you have on deck. At the same time, we're getting walloped by inflation last year and food inflation hit us all like a wrecking ball. Everybody can't stop talking, for example, right now about eggs. Used to be able to get a dozen eggs retail for 89 cents and now it's $4.50. I can't imagine chicken, dairy, ham, sourcing fresh fish, meat, and everything. How did you handle that last year, and how did you model for it? You know, I think the biggest piece is that we already see it. I don't have to do a ton of research, but the vendors that we use, PFG, Cavalier, they give you all their reports. So you know when chicken's going to go up starting next month. You know when it's going to stay up. You know when they think it's going to come down. So. I do an incredible job of making sure I pay attention when they send those emails or, or they call you and tell you what's going on. The moment that it hits is the moment that I change the price on the menu. You do. Wow. In the moment. I don't wait. I don't think about guests can't afford it. You know, scallops went up to $38 a pound at one point. It was our number, not our number one, but one of our top three appetizers at Lily Pearl. If I'm selling that appetizer for $18, Right, collard green risotto, three scallops, and that's what it's been the entire time. How can I now raise that price to $38 to make costs on it? So I have to take it off the menu because it won't make sense. But we opened Jubilee, I'm charging you $28 for two scallops, but you don't know any different because that's what it was when I opened it, right? So it turns into this thing where you're shifting, you're moving, lamb shank, it's hard to get. So the harder it get, the higher price goes up. So it went from $28 to $45 on the menu. It's like when we had Karina on, you know, for Jamaica House, who you got to work with on my show. 
talking about sourcing oxtail from Jamaica with the pandemic. It's brutally difficult. You can't turn around and triple the price on oxtail. Right. And you guys are not a kind of a, you know, cut one size fits all type thing. At Lily Pearl, for example, it said the most popular dishes include short rib egg rolls, lobster shrimp and grits, and braised lamb shank with jollof rice, which jollof rice I know from Ghana right. and the West Indies. So uh, sourcing is not very easy and economies of scale. So even if you have a steakhouse, you know, buttermilk biscuit type place or pops on grace, are you getting more of a benefit of kind of doing a lot of prep or buying a lot of one ingredient for one place? and dispersing it across several different concepts? Yeah. So what we've been able to do is, since we've gotten bigger, we've been able to get on programs with our vendors. So better pricing, holding markets for us for three to six months versus it fluctuating every day. We're able to sign contracts, things like that, that hold those pricing in place for us. And maybe we make it through that wave. The same thing with fire oil. You know, oil is up and down. It's crazy. So right now, I work my deal for oil every three months. So until it gets to a point where it levels out, then yeah, I'll go six months, but I'm doing it every three months now because I might come out of it and the prices go down. And if they go down, I want to catch that low price. But if it goes up, I'm like, okay, what do we do? All right, let's do three more months and see where it lands. So, you know, again, you just got to be smart. You got you to gotta do what makes sense. I've learned being corporate, you charge what you have to charge to make your margin period. There is no, Johnny's doing it down the street. The guests aren't going to pay it. It doesn't matter. If it gets where it's a stupid price, you take it off the menu. But you have to always make sure you change your prices when it's happening. There was a time we would change the prices every month because chicken would go boom, boom, boom. And you're just like, we can't charge more than we charge, right? We got $14 sandwiches, $12 sandwiches come with fries, but Fries are up, hard to get. What what are we going to do when we move? But with chicken, you want your food cost and your margin to be in the low to mid 20s. So we have some wiggle room there. So by the time it got really close, chicken and the prices came down. And I was just like, because if not, now we got to go from a six ounce breast to a five or a four ounce breast. People notice it, shrinkflation, they call it. Yes, they're going to notice it. They're going to be like, what made us special? Now we're selling a Chick-fil-A size breast, right? We're, we're selling a six ounce because that's the buttermilk and honey breast, right? It's different. It's bigger. It's filling. It looks great. We have to change those things. Does that change our concept? Does that change our approach? So we were lucky enough. Prices kicked back in at the right time. And now, you know, we're doing a lot better. In those All things. due respect to the missus. You know, I have nothing but love for her and everything she's done. But she seems to have everything under control right now. How about you quit it and we both become egg smugglers? Let's do it. I'm ready. I already <laughs> got a game for that. There must be an arbitrage. What, you have a bunch of hens or did you bring them under the payroll? That's right. You could Listen, write off the feed. Hey, and I'm a country boy, so I already know how to do it. <laughs> right? My mom and dad, they grew up with chicken. So, listen, I'm ready. We're built for it. We got plenty of land. We'll have a chicken farm right, right in the burbs. Mike Lindsay, in the five minutes or so we have left with you, what are some of the other wild cards? We've done stuff, for example, on tipflation. I went to a brand new taqueria, which just came here. I won't name them, but very popular in Austin. They showed up on Short Pump. It's delicious. It's pricey. It's high end. But I was struck when I walked up and put my order in that the first prompt that came up was the tip, even before I knew the total. Like, do you want to default to a 22% tip? for? Like it's it's become kind of out of control and crazy, and people are starting to complain about it 
for the most part, you guys see it on the receipt that you present with uh, dine-in, sit-down customers. But how are you handling that controversy? All right. So for us, buttermilk and honey, kiosk, you order yourself. As much as people say something about it, more people want to leave a tip. So we put it on, especially short pump. They're asking for it, right? Hey, you guys don't have a 20% tip on here. No, we don't really want you to leave that much, you know, but I want to leave 20%. Okay. We put it on and people leave it. And what we've been able to do with those tips, buttermilk and honey is a place typically it's going to be hard for you to pay that person that works in the front. That's a high school kid, 14 to $15 an hour, right? Let's be real about it. But what we've been able to do in tracking the amount of tips that people leave is enough that I can offer those people $15 an hour. Wow. Right? So. But so it would not work as a concept and you would not be competitive if you offered them $15 out of the, out of the gate without tips. We, we just couldn't afford it. The restaurant, there's just no way. You go to a place like Chick-fil-A, I think they do a good job with their pay scale. So we try to mimic that a little bit. You know, on the high end for them, that's about 14, right? And once you get into, you know, shift leading, that could go up to about 16 or so. So we kind of rode that model. Chick-fil-A doing 50 grand on a Saturday. Three drive through lines. Buttermilk and Honey is doing about seven grand on a Saturday. But I can go to Buttermilk and Honey on a Sunday? Bum, 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 bum. Yes. <laughs> you know? So that's what we've done with that, right? Right. Um, and we're able to flow that in. And again, it was our start not to, to ever put it, but people want to do it. We found the same thing at Hatch Local. We didn't have a 20% on there. We didn't have a tip. People were asking for it. Hatch went in, put it in. You know, something that we're doing at ML Steak and Jubilee, we're piggybacking on basically what America has created for this 20% tip thing, right? So now we charge a 20% service fee. But what we do with that 20% service fee, we don't pay our servers 213. They make between 16 to $18 an hour. If you want to leave an additional tip, you can, but we let you know it's there, it's whatever. But we use that money to make sure the dishwasher gets paid I see. a minimum of $15 an hour. What happens in this world, and especially in the service world, is the server gets the compliment from the guest on all levels. They get the money that the bartender did to make an incredible drink, what it takes for the kitchen crew to make an incredible meal. One person gets the reward of all that. They're going to walk out with $400. The hardest working person in the kitchen is the dishwasher. He may walk out with 60 he earned that day, right? So what we did was we changed that dynamic to make it even for the whole restaurant. But what we've done also is put servers in a place where they can go buy a car. They can go buy a house. They don't get caught in this tax debt because they don't pay their taxes. It puts them in now what I feel like a real job environment. You know, we don't have a server that works for us that makes less than $24 an hour based on guests still leaving this plus tip. As funny as it is and it feels, when you go to Miami, go to New York, go to LA, they, they've been doing this for a while. Mm. So we introduced it and we did it and it's been working well. Yeah, people will question it. Hey, I was going to leave more. I was going to do this. Well, there's an extra tip line, sir. You can still leave more if you wanted to. The key is we have to kill it. That service has got to be bonkers. Right. And I'm willing to take that challenge to take care of this team, to make sure that people that come work for us, your number one turnover in every restaurant is the dishwasher. The restaurant can't run without that person. It, it, would, it would sink the whole ship. Yeah. Right? But we're going to pay the hardest working person minimum wage. 
well, we might give them a dollar over. That doesn't make sense. That's the way it's built. But the restaurant can't afford it any other way. But the guest wants to tip the whole restaurant. But America is created where one person gets it. So what we did was even that playing field. And it's been well received. So we've been able to do it. Servers are getting happy with the balance of it. But we have to be perfect. And that's the, that's the balance. I see it going to it. And honestly, it's going to sound even crazier. Is I don't know if restaurants can survive without it, mm. especially moving forward. You can't get servers to come. You can't get them to stay. They don't take the job as a serious job. What changes that for them? Oh, wow. I make $24 an hour. If we continue to build Lindsay Food Group, they will get sick days. They will get paid vacation on all levels. The dishwasher will get this. This is what we're building. This is what we're doing. That's our goal to change what our industry is. It's dirty. It's filthy. They don't care about you. The work is hard. It's not worth it. It drains you of everything that you are. This is how we change that. No more. I'm leaving to go to a real job. This is the real job now. You can stay here forever. Mike Lindsay, CEO and founder of Lindsay Food Group, the restaurant group that has seven concepts now and more coming out of the gate in the pandemic in 2020 in Richmond, Virginia. Sir, I'm so happy to finally have you on the show and know that you are always welcome to come back. Please, please, I, I man, you've been you've been a supporter for a long time, and I'm glad we were finally able to get together and do this, man. I appreciate you. Thank you, Mike. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and the Robbins School at the University of Richmond. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, again, is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. I appreciate it. Follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fullderadio. And you can catch me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now every week. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. 